Hello. Welcome to the Legends of King Arthur and his Knights. Chapter 16. Romans. A few years passed in peace and relative tranquillity after Lancelot joined the Order of the Round Table. Lancelot's cousins, Lionel and Bors, were brought into the Order, as were a few others. The Order was at its maximum strength. Only the Siege Perilous remained unfilled. However, one person from far overseas had not forgotten a snub from King Arthur, which he had received many years before. Over in the magnificent city of Rome, the Emperor, Lucius, decided that it was time to put the British king in his place. It was time to right the wrong. The Emperor sent twelve ambassadors over to Britain. They delivered his message, which went something like this. King Arthur, the high and mighty Emperor Lucius, sends greetings to the King of Britain. He commands you to acknowledge him as your overlord, and recognise that you rule this land as part of his empire. If you do not accept, then he will send over a massive army and crush you and your puny forces. King Arthur nodded patiently and thanked them for their message. He then asked that they enjoy his hospitality while he consulted with his knights. The ambassadors left and Arthur turned to his advisers. Some of the younger knights were so furious that they wanted the ambassadors executed there and then. Arthur chastised them strongly, saying they must treat the emperor's men well, even if they were to refuse their demands. The knights, kings and princes of Arthur's realms all promised to supply him with thousands and thousands of men, it was agreed, of course, that King Arthur would refuse the demands of the Emperor. In fact, he went further. He told the ambassadors they'd got it the wrong way round. He, King Arthur, was the overlord. The Emperor Lucius was to pay homage to him. The Emperor was baffled when he heard the news. He had expected Arthur to roll over and submit. He had certainly not expected to hear that he, Lucius, was expected to pay homage. He raised an army and marched out of Rome towards Gaul. He was going to teach this upstart Britain a nasty lesson. Arthur, with the help of his kings and princes, also raged a huge army. Leaving Sir Baudwin and Sir Constantine in charge of his kingdom, he too marched into Gaul. The journey across the Channel was calm. The wind blew them across slowly, but the ships weren't bumped or threatened by waves. King Arthur settled himself down to sleep. He fell into the deepest of deep sleeps, and his sleeping mind drifted off. As it drifted, King Arthur began to dream, and this is what he dreamt. A dreadful dragon came flying out of the west. His head was made of azure enamel, his shoulders and claws were gleaming gold. His wings were a myriad of different colours. His tail was full of tatters. A hideous and quite frankly lethal flame raged forth from his mouth. It was not the kind of creature which usually spelt good times for the people. Meanwhile, from the east came a giant black boar the same colour as the foulest of rain clouds. His paws were as big as posts and he was very nasty looking, with tusks that nobody would want to get in the way of. He roamed around and roared terrifyingly. He looked very, very cross and not afraid to show it. The dragon turned on the boar, hitting him and breathing fire. The boar seemed totally nonplussed and simply gouged the dragon's breast with his tusks until it was red with blood. The dragon flew upward to get away from the tusks and then swooped back down towards its enemy. He breathed fire and then smote the boar so hard it turned to powder. All ten tons of snorting death disappeared. There were no bones, tusks or anything else left, just powder, which floated into the air and then fluttered into the sea. The boar was no more. The king woke up. 
He didn't have Merlin anymore, but he was dying to know the meaning of his dream, so he sent for the wisest philosopher he knew. And this is what the philosopher told him. Sir, the dragon represents your most excellent self. The colours in its wings represent all of the realms which you have conquered. The tatters in the tail are your noble knights of the round table. The boar is a terrible tyrant who torments your people, or maybe just people in general. The dream just shows you are to have no doubt. You have been a great conqueror and will continue to be so. King Arthur was very pleased. He took this to be a great omen ahead of a decisive battle with the Emperor of the Romans. As with all battles in the world of Arthurian legend, though, there were things to be done before the actual fighting could take place. Arthur and his men encountered a messenger who told them of a terrible crime. The wife of his cousin, Sir Howell, had been taken by a psychopathic giant who had a reputation for eating people. It was clear that the poor woman needed rescuing before she ended up as dinner for the big man. Arthur called Sir Kay and they travelled off to meet the oversized cannibal. On the way, they met a woman who pleaded with them to be careful. He has killed fifteen kings, she lamented. He has a coat made from their clothing and precious stones and has embroidered it with their beards. He is invincible. I pray, please ride away and forget about him. You will never defeat him. This, of course, was a red rag to a bull. There is no way King Arthur was going to turn back having heard this. He and Sir Kay rode to the top of a nearby hill where they could look down on the man-chomper. When they saw him, the full horror of the situation was abundantly clear. Strewn around the giant's campfire were the bones of many, many men. Worse than that, though, there were women and children alive in the camp. The giant was fattening them up so they would make a better meal. Arthur and Kay gulped. The giant would not be defeated easily, but it was absolutely vital that he was defeated soon. They moved towards the oversized man-eater, and King Arthur shouted down. You there, murderer! Why have you killed these innocent men and boys? Get up and prepare yourself. We are going to avenge their deaths. The giant didn't speak, and his facial expression didn't change. He simply got up, roared, and smashed his massive club over the place where the voices had come from. King Arthur dodged the blow and swung Excalibur. His aim was outstanding, and the entrails of the giant spewed out onto the ground. The giant fell, clearly needing his entrails more than he might have realised. Arthur shouted to Sir Kay to finish him off, and the seneschal obliged by severing the giant's head. Giant slain, the army of King Arthur moved on. Arthur, knowing that avoiding battle while still achieving his aims was the best course of action, commanded four of his knights to go to the court of the Emperor Lucius and try to bargain with him. Sir Gawain, Sir Lionel, Sir Bors and Sir Bedivere were sent to Rome. They didn't get all the way to Rome. They met the army of the Emperor marching towards Gaul. Sir Gawain and Sir Bors approached the Emperor's men. Sir Gawain announced that King Arthur and his forces were here to fight. The fight could be avoided if the Emperor went home and did homage to the King of Britain. A knight of Rome called Sir Gainus stepped forward and denounced Gawain's words. Gawain, knowing his duty and his orders, wasted no time debating. He sliced off the head of Sir Gainus. It seemed clear to the Emperor's troops that this meant no deal. The fight was on. A battle was inevitable. A battle was held. Many men on both sides were killed, but neither army gained a victory. Sir Lancelot killed a large number of the Emperor's men all by himself, and the other knights did nearly as well. There were too many Romans, though, and neither side could gain the upper hand. 
the Emperor decided he needed to be present at the next battle in order to rally his troops. He was, but the result was no better. He sent a giant into battle for him, but King Arthur simply sliced off the tall man's legs. Many prisoners were taken and sent to Paris. Not everything went Arthur's way. A few of the knights of the round table died. One Roman senator escaped and fled back to the camp of the Roman emperor. He spoke to his master. My lord, I advise you to withdraw. One of Arthur's knights seems to be worth a hundred of our men. Coward, replied the emperor calmly. I will not flee. Lucius raised the hugest of all huge armies and marched towards Arthur. The war between the two armies was about to see its most enormous and death-bringing battle. The battle was indeed dreadful. Thousands and thousands were killed on both sides. King Arthur killed a giant called Galapas. Sir Gawain killed Lucius's three admirals. Sir Lancelot killed another field full of soldiers. Sir Barhouse killed a few more. The tide turned Arthur's way. Lucius was a brave man. He wasn't the kind of emperor who just sat in his palace letting others do all of the work. He rode to the middle of the battle where the fighting was at its thickest and did great deeds. Arthur spotted him and rode out to meet him. The leaders of the two mightiest armies in the world faced each other. They looked each other squarely in the eyes and went into battle. The emperor landed a heavy blow on Arthur's shoulder and wounded him badly. Arthur withdrew slightly and then drew Excalibur. He swung his magical sword with all of his might and hit the emperor on the head. The head was cut in two and the emperor's body was sliced in half down to the waist. Arthur had won. Seventeen kings who supported Lucius were also killed on that day. King Arthur ordered the Roman senators to transport the bodies back to Rome. This they did. When they reached the Roman Senate, they gave a big speech. In it, they very strongly recommended that Rome didn't fight against King Arthur any more. This king from Britain was far too powerful, and there was no chance that they'd ever win. King Arthur himself agreed wholeheartedly with this assessment. With his victorious army, he marched through Gaul and into Italy, first into Lombardy and then south to Tuscany. King Arthur was intent on marching all the way to Rome. In Tuscany, though, he realised his army didn't have enough food to last them the whole journey, so he sent a knight called Sir Florence out to find some more. With Sir Florence were Sir Gawain, Sir Wishard, Sir Clegis and Sir Claremond. Gawain was not too interested in going out to find food. It sounded mightily boring and not very knightly. As the party of food finders rested themselves and their horses for the night, Sir Gawain slipped away unnoticed to find some adventure. Adventure was never too far away for Gawain, and he found it quickly. He came upon a knight holding a shield decorated with three gold griffins. The knight told him to go away, or he would force him to become his prisoner. Gawain grinned to himself. This was definitely adventure. He closed his visor and shouted, That is fighting talk. Get ready for battle. Lances drawn, the two knights charged. The impact would have made the strongest knight knight wince, and both were thrown from their horses. Gawain drew his favourite sword, which was called Galatine. He swung it well, and wounded the other knight sorely, eventually opening up a large gash in his body, through which could be seen his liver and his lung. As he fell, the knight summoned up his strength for one last blow. It was a good one, and he managed to cut one of Sir Gawain's veins. Sir Gawain began to spurt blood into the air. The knight laughed. That was a magical blow from a magical sword, he said. 
It will never stop bleeding unless attended by somebody that I know. I will take you there, but you must grant me something in return. I wish to be christened, and then to become a knight of the round table. The knight had matched Sir Gawain during their battle, and King Arthur's nephew thought he would be a useful addition to King Arthur's court, even though he could currently see both his lung and his liver through a large gash in the knight's side. He nodded, realising they both needed treatment, now immediately without delay. He asked the knight who he was. I am Primus, replied his opponent. I am the son of a great prince who has battled against Rome for many, many years. Our family are descended from the great hero Hector of Troy and from Alexander the Great. We are the rightful rulers of Africa and Alexandria. Gawain revealed that he was King Arthur's nephew. Primus was pleased, but he had worrying news. Near here is the Duke of Lorraine and a whole load of other kings and princes with thousands of men, maybe over 60,000. Many of them are Saracens. They both rode off and received treatment for their wounds. The ointment must have been pretty good, certainly better than leeches and praying, as they were both back to full health and strength very rapidly. Soon they met up with Sir Wishard, Sir Florence and the others. They gave them the news there was a huge army nearby ready to battle with Gawain and his men. They only had a hundred knights of the round table and a few thousand men supplied by Primus. Nevertheless, there was nothing else that could be done. A massive battle was fought between Sir Gawain and his hundred knights and Primus's men on one side and the Saracens, Lombardians and others on the other side. Gawain fought valiantly as always. Primus fought even better. He slew the Marquis of Moyes and many others. The Lombardians and Saracens may have been plentiful, but they were no match for Gawain and Primus. By the end of the day, the battlefield was strewn with Saracens. Many thousands of them were dead. An awful lot of treasure was also taken. They rode back to King Arthur, who was besieging a Tuscan city, and presented him with the treasure and a whole lot of prisoners. King Arthur was delighted. Primus was made a knight of the round table, and so he was delighted. Everyone was delighted. Feeling very pleased with his victories, King Arthur decided it was time to take the city he was besieging and not waste any more time sitting outside it. Ladders and all manner of climbing equipment were put up against the walls. Arthur was clearly on a roll because the Duchess of the city, accompanied by many noble men and women, came out and knelt before him. They begged him not to attack and handed the key to the city over. Many other cities in Italy heard about this defeat. Pretty soon others followed. Milan, Urbino, Pavia and many others all declared their loyalty to the king. Spoleto and Viterbo followed. Before long every city north of Rome was under King Arthur's control. Arthur and his men triumphantly marched into the Vale just north of Rome. It was a Saturday and the weather was hot and oppressive. The senators of Rome were certainly feeling oppressed, and they decided to go and see their conqueror. Every senator and every bishop left alive in the great city travelled to King Arthur's camp to meet with the victorious monarch from the foggy island on the edge of the world. King Arthur received them warmly and promised them peace. Gratefully they accepted, and then asked if the king would consent to be crowned as Emperor of the Romans. "'I agree,' replied the king, at Christmas I will ride into the city and be crowned. All of my knights of the round table who have travelled across Europe with me will be in attendance. Then we will have a big party to celebrate. At Christmas, King Arthur was crowned by the Pope 
and declared to be the emperor of the Romans. He was now king of all of the lands from Iceland to Rome. He gave various lands to his greatest knights so they could rule them for him. To the new knight, Sir Priamus, he gave the duchy of Lorraine. Priamus bowed down and thanked him, promising to serve King Arthur for the rest of his life. King Arthur returned to England. He landed at Sandwich and was greeted by Queen Guinevere and a vast cheering crowd. King Arthur's kingdom was as large as it would ever get. He was at the height of his powers. It seemed that his glorious reign would last forever. Next week, we will hear about more of the exploits of Sir Lancelot of the Lake. Until then, have a great week, and I'll speak to you next time.